The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. It seems like they want to send the message that hostage taking is still on the table for us in the future. Because otherwise, it doesn't make sense why they would have timed it in this way. There's no nothing in the Chinese courts that would make sense as to why these two guys got released. One of them is still waiting their trial, right? Neither of whom had any medical issues that the Chinese acknowledged, nor since they've been back in Canada. So none of that made sense from a Chinese perspective. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 1st, 2021. Meng Wanzhou, the chief financial officer of Huawei, is free, having been put on a flight from Canada back to her native China. Moments later, two Canadians held in China were also freed, put on flights back to Canada, in what many are describing as hostage diplomacy by the People's Republic of China. The United States had indicted Meng Wanzhou and Huawei for bank fraud, but dropped the indictment against her, at least, having reached a deferred prosecution agreement with her in which she gave statements that may be used against Huawei. Joining us in the virtual jungle studio to go over all the angles are Pete Strzok, former deputy head of counterintelligence at the FBI, Julian Koo, a professor of law at Hofstra University, and Leo West of Carleton University in Canada. It's the Lawfare Podcast, October 1st, Hostage Diplomacy Between China Canada, and the United States. So, Julian, get us started. The case of uh, Meng Wanzhou had a kind of dramatic denouement the other day. Who is she? What happened? And why is it a giant issue between three countries? Okay, yeah, there's a lot going on in this story. So, um, Meng Wanzhou is the um, chief financial officer of Huawei which is maybe the largest and maybe the most global Chinese tech uh, technology equipment companies. Huawei is a, it's kind of a, the equivalent of Cisco and maybe Apple combined in some ways. <laughs> um, so it's a gigantic company, very successful company. And so she's the chief financial officer. She's also the daughter of the founder of the company. And they're very... Um, prominent figures within China's elite for business reasons, but also 
a lot of rumors about being well connected to the party and the government in China. So in any event, she was arrested by Canadian authorities or actually detained by Canadian authorities in December 2018 at the request of the United States under the U.S. extradition treaty um, with Canada. And the U.S. Uh, had charged her with bank fraud in relation to some presentation she gave to HSBC, which the U.S. alleged misled the HSBC about Huawei's dealings with Iran, um, which would have otherwise put HSBC at risk of violating U.S. sanctions on Iran. So that's the sort of, you know, it's, it's a little bit unusual case, but it's a, you know, the bank fraud cases are not unusual. And, you know, the U.S. does request extradition from Canada all the time. Um, what was unusual is kind of the reaction from China in particular. And so, you know, she had, um, she was detained in December 2018 and only a few days, maybe 10 days afterwards, two Canadians, uh, Michael Kovrig and uh, Michael Spavar, who were living in China at the time, were detained by Chinese authorities under kind of mysterious and never fully explained circumstances, but were arrested and accused later of endangering Chinese national security. And so they were kind of, for a variety of reasons, they were essentially hostages by the Chinese government while the Chinese government was attacking, demanding that Canada release Meng Wanzhou and really doing a full court press to push Canada to um, back off and just release her and deny the U.S. extradition request. So Canada didn't do that. And Meng sort of, you know, hired her legal team and she was given sort of supervised release so she could live at her her two different million dollar homes in um, Vancouver while she fought this case in Canadian courts. In which, and then that battle went on for three years. And in the meantime, the two Canadians were being held in much less fancy conditions within China. So this created this sort of diplomatic standoff because Canada was under tremendous pressure to get these two Canadians released. They began diplomatically and then not so diplomatically pushing the United States to, to try to resolve this case as quickly as possible. Uh, President Trump, who under whose sort of auspices this arrest occurred, you know, had spoke out loud at a, some uh, press briefing, like, well, maybe we'll trade her for some trade deal with China. That never happened, but it further weakened or made the case more complicated. Because I think the argument among among many other arguments was that she was being politically persecuted. So that was the sort of the background. This case dragged on for three years and no disrespect to Canadian courts, but it's a long time for an extradition proceeding. And so then it kind of dragged on and then uh, the pressure kept building. But finally, a deal was made and Meng was off, uh, agreed to a deferred prosecution agreement where she admitted essentially to all the facts that were alleged, but she did not have to plead guilty. She was allowed to go back to China. And then sort of at the same time she left Canadian airspace, almost exactly the the two Canadians, Michael Koberg and Michael Spavar, were released and sent home to Canada almost at the same time. And then later on, we learned two Americans who'd been prevented from leaving China for the last three years also were allowed to leave, you know, just a couple of days later. So it looks like a hostage deal. Now we look more like the Cold War trading with spies. But not quite, because no one here is alleged to be, well, the Canadians are alleged to be spies, but Meng's not even alleged to be a spy. She's just an executive alleged to have committed crimes, bank fraud, really, corporate crimes. It was a big deal in Canada because of the humanitarian issues. And also, Canada suffered a lot of diplomatic and some even some trade sort of sanctions from China over this. And so, the obviously, the release is great news. But it does sort of raise some questions about, you know, Meng and this kind of crazy case involving that China was willing to go to these lengths to protect supposedly someone who's just an executive at a private Chinese technology company. And yet she was met 
with sort of a hero's welcome. They rolled out the red carpet. The Chinese government hailed her as a hero of the country and really treated this as a huge deal in China as well. So it really does sort of speak to the really complicated and murky relationship that Chinese companies have with the Chinese government that, you know, sometimes they're accused to be arms of the state. And this sort of looks like it definitely. And also the tactics the Chinese government's willing to use to protect those companies. Um, and then also relations of the United States with countries like Canada, who are allies, but not on board with everything the United States wants to do with respect to China or with respect to its general policies. And so this created some friction in the Chinese, uh, the U.S.-Canada relationship as well. So there's a lot to talk about. Yeah, so let's, uh, let's pick through that. Leah, let's start with the Canadian side. This is a classic situation where Canada is caught in the middle uh, how big a deal was this case in Canada? And did Canada, other than, you know, the protection of its own citizens, have a real dog in this dispute between the United States and China? Or was it really just caught in the middle because of an extradition request? So it was recently described as the biggest thing that happened in the news last week. And last week we had a federal election. So that should tell you how big this story is and has been in Canada. It has been a wedge issue used by opposition and parliament against Trudeau's government to basically hammer him on being soft on China and not doing enough. Um, it caused the firing or resignation, I should say, of Canada's ambassador to China. It has been basically the reason why you haven't seen Canada come out with a position on Huawei as part of Canada's developing 5G infrastructure. In terms of Canada-Chinese relationship, in terms of the domestic issues, it has been a massive, massive story. Okay, so pause there for a second, because this is going to get to a deep difference in the Canadian culture versus U.S. culture, why is it a big deal? If the Chinese arrested, you know, the the Turks arrested a minister, U.S. minister to put pressure on us about stuff. And, you know, it was a, like it was something that people talked about, but it was not a huge issue, particularly in comparison to a federal election. Why is this story such a big deal in Canada? I think partially because of the fact that we had innocent Canadians, like absolutely innocent, not associated with the state, despite one of them formerly working as a diplomat, being held as pawns in a political debate between at the time, which started out as President Trump, who we should recall that back when this first started, when Canadians were detained in exchange for an executive that the Americans wanted, the relationship between Canada and the United States was on very, very thin ice. We just suffered tariffs. Trump and, and Trudeau had had that rocky um, situation following the, the G7 meeting in Charlevoix in 2017. So it was really one of those situations where it looked like Canada couldn't act in its own Canadian citizens' interests for fear of further alienating our closest ally. But at the same time, we were getting completely squeezed by China. And that narrative continued to play out for years. And 
is the resolution a resolution that is satisfying for most Canadians? I mean, is this a a situation where you know Canada got what it wanted? The United States. We will get to the question of whether it capitulated, but it uh, certainly did not. It, it stopped pursuing the extradition, which allowed Canada to allow her to go home and Canada gets its people back within minutes. Is that the resolution that Canadians were looking for? I think it's the best possible outcome. One of the things that you know didn't Julian didn't address was the fact that the case of the extradition case itself against Hmong wasn't a slam dunk. There were some serious legal issues here, um, which I love to talk about because that's the nerdy lawyer in me. But that wasn't a slam dunk. So the fact that this case could have maybe fallen apart at that stage, I think would have been bad for the Canadians and the Americans and would have looked like quite the victory for China, um, more so than this DPA, which you know she did admit wrongdoing, which could be used in future prosecutions against, and a future prosecution against Huawei, which continues. So I think this is, kind of the least bad option. We got them home. We got to stand by our line that we were a rule of law country and we were going to follow the rule of law and our and our legal obligations. And so yeah, I think this is the best outcome we could have we could have asked for. I am interested in your sense of whether this case was in any sense mishandled. I mean, obviously, Trump's comments linking it to trade disputes with China uh, were obviously very inappropriate. But do you see this as as a situation in which, you know, in the U.S.-Canada relationship, anybody did anything wrong? Or is this a situation where, you know, the United States had a prosecution to bring Canada did exactly what one would want Canada to do, or from a U.S. perspective anyway, which was to cooperate with an extradition request. China really bared its fangs at Canada, and the United States responded by getting having a long-term standoff with China and ultimately doing, as you described, the least bad thing. Was there some way this should have been handled differently by anybody or is this just one of those things that arises that causes friction? Well, I will say that there's probably two things. You mentioned Trump's statements and his statements essentially um, offering a mang up as a quid pro quo for a trade agreement is part of the abusive process motion that was brought in Canadian court. So uh, could have actually, I don't think would have derailed it, but definitely made the case harder to prosecute in Canada. And also there was a sense in Canada and that the, the Americans weren't really engaging on Canadians' behalf early on. In that first year, there was a lot of pressure to have U.S. officials raise this issue with China whenever possible. And it wasn't really coming across that that was happening. Um, that changed later on at the end of the Trump presidency. And there seemed to be a significant change in tone when the Biden administration came in about making this a priority in 
diplomatic conversations with China, but there was a period where it did feel like the U.S. wasn't taking this issue seriously. And in terms of uh, did anybody do anything wrong, the Canadian ambassador that was ultimately resigned basically, you know, told the Chinese language media in Canada that that he really wished the Americans would just drop it all, which uh, was quite the gaffe and uh, ultimately ended in his resignation. So, Julian, what do we know about the two American hostages who have gotten a lot less attention because by the nature of them, it was you know kind of bilateral thing with the Chinese rather than sort of dragging an ally in. But what do we know about them and how did they get wrapped up in this situation? Yeah, so they, they were actually detained or at least put under exit bans before the um, Hmong case was brought. So they weren't really entangled in the Hmong matter originally. They were, uh, they're both children, uh, they're American citizens, but they're their parents were both originally Chinese nationals and their father is still a Chinese national. But basically, they're being held. They went to visit their grandmother, pay respects to her, I think, when she was either sick or passed away, and then found that they could not leave the country. And both of them had grown up in the States, and one of them can't even speak Chinese at all. And would just suddenly, for three years since 2018, were just stuck. And no one would tell them why they couldn't leave. They just said, you can't leave. But people suspect it's because China was looking for their father and were holding them hostages to get their father to come back uh, to China for prosecution on um, corruption charges. So it was really surprising that they also got released. <laughs> it didn't seem like they were related. And because of the nature of their father's situation, the U.S. government wasn't as quite aggressively pushing on their behalf. But they, you know, they did get some press, uh, they get some coverage, and they, they you know, they, it is a very sad story. I mean, you... <laughs> It, you know, I had relatives in China. It would not be great to go visit relatives in China. And then all of a sudden, for three years, you know, for undisclosed amount of time, you just can't leave and no one will tell you why. They weren't charged with anything. There's no proceeding against them. There's nothing. There's just some bizarre uh, exit ban that was suddenly lifted and as suddenly without any explanation either. So it's your impression that they were actually being held hostage to this case or that they were being held there for other reasons to put pressure on their father, but that the Chinese used the resolution of this case to kind of throw in the towel on that one. Yes, they were originally being held, I guess you could call them hostages, for their father, to expect their father to come back. That's why I was kind of surprised that they, because there wasn't that much pressure brought on China on this case. And so they seemed to just get released at the same time, they just said, um, which is kind of strange, but I'm glad, but it's also kind of, they they were kind of caught up in this, and I guess maybe they wanted to show some goodwill to um, the U.S. government as well. You know, that's part of this that we don't know, the dealings behind the scenes, and, you know, that maybe they thought this would be something that the U.S. government would take favorably. But they weren't otherwise intertangled in this case, the Hmong case. So I'm I'm interested in the the optics of the Chinese action here, because you know, the Justice Department and the State Department and the White House have tried to emphasize that, you know, they did not put pressure on the Justice Department to resolve this on favorable terms. The Justice Department resolved it on the merits. But then as though to make them look as dishonest as humanly possible, the Chinese release the two Canadians, both of whom are named Michael, within hours of her leaving Canadian airspace. And so I guess I'm 
interested, Julian, from your point of view, what message the Chinese were trying to send with that? Were they trying to say, yes, this is a hostage trade? And Leah, from your point of view, what message the Canadians received from that? Okay, so yeah, so my my theory about this is weird because it doesn't make sense for the Chinese to release the two Canadians at that very moment because it makes them look bad, right? <laughs> makes it so they, they're supposed to deny that this is hostage diplomacy, but but I think they did it because, in a weird way, they actually uh, want to embrace it to show that they they were the ones responsible for getting this case resolved. So one part of them, you know, one part of the government's like, yeah, this is this is what we do. This is how China protects its own people. They didn't talk about the release in their domestic news media as part of the trade, but they, you know, I think that that was part of the signal. And I think some people said maybe they want to show the message here is to Canada and the United States. It's like, we will trade people. We're willing to do this again. And, but if, you know, but if you, if you play ball with us, we'll release people too. So we'll live up to the bargain that we, you know, that we made. And so they, it's, it seems like they want to send the message that hostage taking is still on the table for us in the future. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense why they would have timed it in this way. There's no nothing in the Chinese courts that would make sense as to why these two guys got released. One of them is still waiting their trial, right? Neither of whom had any medical issues that the Chinese acknowledged, nor since they've been back in Canada. So after the fact, they came out with the story that they gave them medical parole and put them out on bail. But none of that made sense from a Chinese perspective, Chinese law perspective. So it is a mystery, but they clearly, at least part of the government wants to embrace the hostage-taking narrative, I think as kind of a threat to the United States and other countries that might want to hold a Chinese citizen, you know, to detain a Chinese citizen at the request of the United States. Leah, how was it received in Canada? Was there any any ambiguity as to it being received as a hostage situation? No. <laughs> and But, I mean, most of us, after we heard about the deferred prosecution agreement, assumed there would be some kind of face-saving effort. It maybe would take a couple of weeks or a couple of months, but eventually the Michaels would release. And so, as Julian pointed out, one of them had been already gone through their trial and sentenced, so he was serving his 11 years, and the other had gone to trial and not yet received their sentence, and they were both apparently released on bail. And so it was kind of shocking that everyone said, oh, the response was essentially, oh, China's not even pretending anymore, because throughout the entire process, China had condemned Meng Wanzhou's arrest, and then at the same time would say, but the Michaels detention has nothing to do with that. Every time the Michaels were brought up, they would refer back to Meng, and then, but also say that they weren't all connected. So it was just kind of fascinating that they didn't even attempt to pretend that they weren't connected when it finally came down to releasing them. And is the Canadian perception of the U.S. action that the U.S. resolved the criminal case and then the Chinese responded by releasing these people or that there was a deal between the United States and China, implicit or explicit, in which we would trade her for them? No, the perception isn't that the deal was a tit for tat. I think most of us understood that the Justice Department, whether or not in consultation with the State Department or not, came to the agreement that the deferred prosecution agreement was the best way forward. 
whether or not the fact that the extradition process in Canada, again, wasn't a sure thing and could have drawn out for many, depending on appeals, many years to come, that probably factored into it, I would think, into the justice decision. But I, I do believe that everyone was kind of surprised that it happened so immediately. I think people expected that this would result in their eventual release, but not that as part of the agreement that, you know, we would see them on a plane that very evening. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. All right, Pete. So from uh, Julian's perspective, this is a, you know, U.S.-China relations discussion from Leah's perspective, it's a U.S. Canada Canada China discussion. From your perspective, this is a counterintelligence case. It grows out of clearly out of a, a counterintelligence investigation of Huawei, and I'm interested. And it's part of a situation in which the FBI director recently testified that the volume of Chinese counterintelligence cases is, you know, grossly proliferated. And so I'm curious, quite apart from the international relations components of this disposition, how we should understand the case against Meng and the larger counterintelligence effort of which it is a part. So the way to think about Huawei is it's uh, got several layers to it. I think at the at the base level, you've got a lot of data out there in the indictments. There, there are alleged violations of criminal law. They're very robust indictments that lay out a lot of information about alleged criminal activity, whether that's domestic in nature. You know, the Western District of uh, Washington involving T-Mobile, but you have a host of international activity as well out of EDNY, looking at conspiracy and IEPA violations involving Iran as well as through EDNY, these, these local conspiracy to steal trade secrets and, and RICO at the end. So there, there's a host of, at the, at the base level, criminal activity, alleged criminal activity that Huawei was engaged in over a long period of time and around the world. And so particularly when you start talking about Iran and the potential use of technology, that very quickly gets into national security concerns. And from a counterintelligence perspective, you know, anytime you have a company like Huawei or others allegedly giving a adversarial totalitarian nation the ability to potentially conduct surveillance and or 
uh, use that technology against its populace, that presents problems for U.S. intelligence collection. It presents problems for you know, U.S. counterintelligence in terms of raising, in this instance, allegedly the Iranians' technical capabilities. And then finally, the, the probably the highest sort of more intelligence, counterintelligence level are the various, you know, not necessarily in the indictments, but w- concerns which have been spoken about in other fora about Huawei and other Chinese technological companies who have either existing links to the government of China or are certainly in a relationship with the government of China can compel them to do things or use them to collect intelligence, uh, whether that's directly through changes to hardware or you know, obtaining information from the companies themselves. So you've got these various layers of concern when it comes to the FBI. And it, it, I think at the end of the day, you know, the broadest, certainly these are concerning criminal charges, but at the end of the day, the counterintelligence threat that Huawei presents from a collection perspective is, is very concerning. And so when an incident like this happens where, you know, she's detained in Canada for three years and the Chinese respond by taking hostages and we eventually cannot get the extradition done. We just have to sort of suck it up and let her go home. What is the, you know, the sort of national security consequence of that from a, I mean, there's the criminal side of that, but there's also, if you have all these other concerns about Huawei and you can't get custody of Meng and when you know, when the Canadians take custody of her, the Chinese turn out to have and are willing to use uh, in a very flamboyant way, a lot of human leverage. What does that do to the FBI's, you know, broader counterintelligence efforts against organizations like Huawei? Well, I think it's concerning, certainly, that the Chinese were able to effectively engage in you know, essentially hostage taking to secure the release of you know, individuals. I don't, the, the rest of the criminal, the criminal charges haven't gone away. So that liability is still there, whether, you know, she ever returns to actually face trial in the United States, I, w- I would bet against that, but. No, no, she got a deferred prosecution agreement. Did she get it? Okay. I didn't know that she had, um, the, the, the DPA haven't. She entered into a factual stipulation and that can be used against Huawei, but she's, she walked. So again, that's that's obviously concerning because it's demonstrated to the Chinese that this behavior works. I think some of it you have to look and place these indictments and these actions in the context of the past administration. And I, while I don't have direct knowledge into this, I think it is a reasonable consideration that the dysfunction of the interagency process in the last administration negatively impacted the rollout of these cases. And what I mean by that is that if you're going to certainly arrest individuals who are closely linked to influential people who in and of themselves are very you know, significant figures that you're going to have to have a whole of government buy-in to agree to that. And if you have fissures between say the Department of Justice and the Department of State over what should be done and the action takes place anyway, that when conflict comes, unless you have that universal sort of agreement that you may not be able to 
sustain uh, the fight, as it were, to to stop and not have this resolution. So some of this I blame on not a rushed, but perhaps not a kind of coherent and agreed upon approach to the issue by the prior administration. It hurts when this happens because it demonstrates first to the Chinese that this behavior works, that it encourages, I think, future similar action. And other nations looking at it, I think, rightly or wrongly, will look at this and assume that they can, you know, by detaining Americans in any sort of even closely analogous circumstance, that they'd be encouraged to consider that and to arrive at the same result of freeing whoever their own person was detained. So, and, and of course, there's a difference between, you know, this happens all the time when, you know, spies are detained or wrapped up inevitably, you know, with Russia or elsewhere, there'll be a reciprocal action and you'll get a, a swap or a trade, but that's usually done outside of a strictly criminal context in which this was. So, I, you know, I think it's, it encourages continued Chinese action along this way. So, Leah, this took three years of Canadian extradition proceedings and they were never finished. And you alluded to the fact earlier that the case was not a slam dunk. You know, there's obviously some frustration on the U.S. part with the fact that, you know, we couldn't get the extradition done. Why was this case difficult given the uh, relative gravity of the material in the indictment? Well, a couple of reasons, partially because her legal team you know, challenged every step of the way. So the first one was the the challenge on the on the double criminality aspect that this is simply what she was charged with in the U.S., which was, as they characterized it, um, you know, violating U.S. sanctions is not a, a crime in Canada. So that that in itself would be a basis to not move forward with the extradition. That was set aside. The judge found that you know fraud is a crime in Canada, just like it is in the United States. Then they moved on, and there were four abusive process motions. One related to the the concept that this was all political um, and based largely on the the statements of, of President Trump, which I mentioned. Two, which had to do with the actions of RCMP, our federal policing agency, and CBSA, our border agents, which actually could have raised very interesting and um, undeveloped areas of law around what our border agents can do in in order to assist in criminal prosecutions in Canada. And I know some people are are sad. We won't get to see what the law would have developed, how it would have developed there, but uh, we're more glad that the Michaels are home. And then the, the last one, which I think actually had some teeth, was this concept that the crime that Ms. Amang was accused of was essentially an improper exercise of U.S. enforcement jurisdiction outside of the United States based on really no connection at all to the United States. You know, it all stems from a conversation in a Hong Kong restaurant between a Chinese executive and a banking official from a U.K. bank. And the, the basis for hooking in American criminal law to this was the fact that transactions cleared in U.S. dollars through the United States. And I know that there has been debate about this in U.S. academic circles, whether that's a permissible extension of of U.S.'s criminal um, jurisdiction abroad. And basically, the argument was that this is an unlawful you know, exercise of U.S. criminal uh, jurisdiction and that it would be wrong for the Canadian court to allow our process to be abused in that way. 
and to ask the court to not actually go ahead with the committal and instead stay the extradition because of the fact that um, realistically the underlying crimes themselves are uh, unlawful at international law. So really interesting. And there were a number of uh, U.S. constitutional international law experts who provided expert evidence in that motion. And I think it is was a compelling argument that the judge would have had to deal with carefully and had she not, um, would have made for some interesting grounds of appeal. So do you think that part of the explanation for the Justice Department's entering into a deferred prosecution agreement with her was a lack of confidence that they prevail in Canadian court and therefore, you know, as you alluded to earlier, not wanting to give the super big win to China, which is, you know, which is basically Canada stuffing it in the U.S.'s face and say, no, we won't even extradite her. Yeah, I'm sure the government would have been really unhappy if that's actually how it had turned out in, in Canadian courts. But I do think that even if it had not resolved in favor of the extradition, there would have been prolonged appeals. Like this was not going to resolve quickly. The legal issues were complicated and messy and gave lots of ground for continue after continual appeal. And so I just, I think something the Justice Department would have considered was how long is it going to actually take for her to get Hmong into the U.S. so we can even proceed with this prosecution? So, Leah, I know you have to drop off, but I want to ask uh, one more question before you do. You said earlier that because of this issue, Canada has deferred for three years formulating a policy toward Huawei. I'm wondering uh, now that the Michaels are back and Meng is is out of the hair of the uh, of the Canadian government, whether we can expect action on Huawei and what might we expect that to look like? I think you can expect it. I think it won't be immediate. But the other thing to say is that our service providers basically took that decision out of the hands of the government anyway. So. It's pretty typical Canadian policy to not make a decision if you can avoid it. And in this case, Canada didn't take a decision, but all of the major service providers who are responsible for building the infrastructure in Canada have already said that they won't use Huawei. So the risk of Huawei that comes from it being embedded in our 5G networks right now is low because the service providers have said they won't use it. Obviously, they can change their mind. So it would behoove the government to come out with a formal position, but there's not an immediate need to do so because of what the providers have already done. Julian? Okay, well, just on the issue that um, Leah mentioned about the the dollar clearing issue that the Canadian court was presented with the argument that essentially the fact that they were um, using their U.S. subsidiaries to clear their transaction, the HSBC, which is not a U.S. bank, you know, that it was illegal to try to punish them or protect them against fraud or punish them for sanctions because all they're doing is using dollar clearing. is is an interesting argument. I agree with Leah, it's an interesting argument. I'm not, and I think there was a risk a Canadian court would have bought it, although I'm not, uh, in, I'm not a Canadian lawyer, so I, I can't say, but I, I don't think that's a, 
a slam dunk argument either way. I do think there's a risk that was created and that would have dragged out for years. That's, and I think that is a big problem. I think dragging this out for years. I think that if there weren't the Michaels there, sitting there stuck in Chinese prison, I just don't feel like there's the same pressure to resolve it the way that the Justice Department did, especially with the deferred prosecution agreement instead of holding out for a guilty plea of some kind, or at least imposing some sort of consequence for what's supposedly serious fraud. So I, I, I do think the way this whole case handled, I understand the Department of Justice probably did make a judgment that this was a safer bet given the risk that they might lose. But I do think that it's odd how easily Mung got off ultimately in this case. So Pete, you mentioned that this has a sort of look of a spy trade. In your book, you describe a case that you were involved in that actually produced a spy trade. And it's one that I've been, th- it's a case that I've been thinking about a lot in connection with this. It's the the case of the so-called illegals on which the series, The Americans was based very, very loosely, which, you know, you guys uh, rolled up this ring of Russian spies. They get prosecuted and then Basically, the the president swoops in and they get traded for Russians being held. How is this similar to that and how is it different? Oh, well, I think it's the easier part is that it's similar in that you had two essentially nation states detaining people using national authorities. And doing that in in one case, the one country responding specifically to an arrest or a detention in another country and doing that with a specific intent to try and exchange people to get their people back. But I think the thing falls apart is you normally you have like to like. And, you know, in the case of the, the, you know, the detentions of the Canadian citizens, my understanding of their background is they're not at all analogous to the alleged activities of uh, Meng and Huawei. So to the extent that you, you want to try and have a parody and sort of behavior that, that didn't exist here. And that's certainly concerning. When you, when you say parody, what, just to be clear, what you mean is when, when Obama traded the illegals, he was trading them for actual spies, where here it feels a little bit more like trading an accused criminal for a hostage or a pair of hostages. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, and so I think Anytime you get a circumstance where there aren't like to like, you say, okay, and where's the disparity and who does the disparity favor? And I think in this case, you know, this was a, it was not what China did was not up to the same, the the people that were detained, the behavior in no way was up to the same level of alleged sort of misconduct. And so to, to give into that, then again, whether or not it encourages it, it certainly allows for the fact that this behavior worked. The the activity that is occurring and that's being responded to are from two completely different spheres, and they're from different spheres in a construct that favors the government of China. And so when the when the US, when Canada acquiesces to that, there's already a disparity in response. And this tacitly says, well, that's okay, it's gonna work. And so again, whether there were behind the scenes concessions, whether there are things we don't know about that occurred as part of this, it's certainly looking from the outside, doesn't seem to be a an exchange that favors, that certainly is unequal. And, and in my opinion, uh, disfavors the, the US and Canada in that relationship. 
this case, as you note, presents as a bank fraud criminal case, but we have to understand it as part of a major set of FBI concerns about Chinese counterintelligence. Uh, the FBI director was once again up testifying about the volume of these cases the other day on, on Capitol Hill and the U.S. concern about Huawei is certainly publicly expressed and not remotely a secret. How do you understand the China counterintelligence environment more broadly? Is it as dire as, you know, Chris Ray would 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 lead one to think or or should we, you know, basically understand this principally as a criminal matter? No, I think it's much more than that. I think, you know, Director Ray is right. I think China is by far and away the greatest counterintelligence threat that's facing the U.S. today. You know, we've done a lot of focusing on Russia just because of the last administration and they're mucking around on social media with our elections and sort of internal dissent. But stepping back from just the disinformation space, the the threat posed by China, um, from a counterintelligence perspective, by far and away is the greatest, um, I think, that we face in the U.S. So I think he's right to highlight it. I think he is right to talk about the number and how broad it is, because, of course, that's the challenge. One, it, that's a massive number of cases. It's helpful to talk about the number of cases, but at the end of the day, that those you know figures can lie. And so you can open a ton of cases, but if you don't have sufficient resources to work them, or if you're not satisfactorily prioritizing which cases you're working, uh, there's there's a lot of potential uh, problem, many problems in there. So the devil's in the details of what those cases are. But I think when you look at China, Russia has a significant military nuclear capability. They have a significant energy uh, sector. They have some national resources. But when you compare that to China, which just has a massive economy that is challenging the United States in the strategic defensive sphere, challenging it in the economic sphere just across the board from the defense industry, the pharmaceuticals, to energy, to you name it. If there is a comparative U.S. advantage, China is trying to, is competing and is using everything in their toolbox to do it, including their intelligence services. So I, I, I absolutely agree with Director Ray's prioritization of China, and I would agree with his characterization of the threat. And I, I think it's absolutely what we're going to be looking at is, is the primary concern facing the U.S. counterintelligence field for the next, easily for the next 20 years. And if you were still running or, or helping run the, the FBI's counterintelligence division, uh, would you see what happened last week as a reasonable resolution for the FBI's uh, counterintelligence interests in this case? Or would you see this as a case that went off the rails because of the way that we and the Chinese got Canada caught in the middle and we need to be more careful in the future? Well, I want to caveat my answer by saying I don't know what 
occurred that is not publicly known. So there's always the chance that there were concessions or decisions or gains that were made that for whatever reason, and there are a ton of legitimate reasons they may not have been made public. So I don't know that. And so this answer is necessarily limited. But I think anytime that you bring and, and place the political capital to charge, particularly an individual rather than just a company, when that doesn't result in a prosecution, when that doesn't result in anything other than what clearly this doesn't look like an appropriate resolution. This doesn't feel like a just exchange. This doesn't feel like, you know, kind of like for like in, in terms of the, the back and forth that took place. So I think I would be discouraged. I think some of it, you know, the question also that you have to ask is, you know, what was the decision process that took place prior to bringing those charges? Many of these things, you know, the problems that, that were apparent now in the Canadian justice system, you know, many of those seem to be, foreseen or foreseeable. And so were those considered when DOJ was making the decision to charge? And, you know, if not, why not? And so I can't, you know, some of this is the, if it was a bad decision to bring charges from the beginning, or if it were improperly or insufficiently considered, that would also sort of temper my, you know, sort of reaction about whether or not this is a just result. We're going to leave it there. Pete Strzok, Julian Ku, Leah West, thank you all for joining us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is Hamza Shitu of Goat Rodeo. It's time for you to step up and do your part to promote the Lawfare Podcast. Share us on all the socials. Leave us a rating and review. Buy our merch at thelawfarestore.com. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Come be a material supporter of Lawfare at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash lawfare. And as always, thanks for listening.